1: Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Welcome back to part two with Alex Hormozzi. Life has a set of physics. There are things that work and things that don't work. Your job is to experiment until you find the vein of effectiveness. To that end, I bring you Alex Hormozzi, the man with a proven system for identifying destructive habits and turning success into a repeatable process. And speaking of taking action, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our ad free feed where you're going to get access to bonus material you're not going to find anywhere else and some deep archives that also is only available on the ad free feed. And now without further ado, I bring you Alex Hormozzi. This is so interesting. So, um, the way that I have always approached this is I, I am trying to get people to change their frame of reference, frame of reference, Love speaking of things that need to be defined mm-hmm. frame of reference to me are your beliefs and values. Oh, okay, and See, they, I didn't
0: even think that's what you meant. Yeah. I thought I totally thought you meant something different. So this is why we. Define the,
1: yes, exactly. Yeah. This is why you define things. Okay, so um, and and I will say all of this in what I just heard you say is that where I'm coming at things is from beliefs and values, where you're coming at things is from behaviors and traits. It's very interesting. Very interesting. Like I am going to think about this so much <laughs> moving forward. Uh, as to one, is it is beliefs and values just particular to me. And that is, I try to help people make change in their life. Yeah. I'm wasting all my fucking time because this is just yeah. the thing that resonates with me. <laughs> or yeah. is there something I'm yeah. getting to the thing that's underneath your behaviors and traits. And that if people don't address this, they will never get to that. Or I'm just wasting my time. Yeah. You were going to say something. I think it's well, value. So if we were to like, when it's
0: like, I have these values, a value is just a behavioral short code. When this happens, I do this. Someone who is loyal when he's out and his wife isn't there, hot girl comes up and says, hey, want to get a drink? Value, which means a set of behaviors, I say no. Or I say I'm married or no thank you, whatever. And so
1: values are skills because you can train them. And That's interesting. Values are skills. I would say the adherence to a value is a skill that you can train, but if you have the wrong value that you adhere to, you're gonna be in trouble. Here's why I start with beliefs and values. I think so much of the human animal is invisible to the person, and that if they, they'll never be able to control their behaviors if they don't control the emotions that drive the behaviors. And I think emotions are an echo of your beliefs and values. And I can change somebody's emotion, like their cognitive, The way that they frame something cognitively will drive their biological response to that moment, which is insane. So the quote, nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. The death of your mother is not good or bad. Totally. Thinking it's bad makes it bad. Yeah. Now- that is, uh, you and I think come at that from very different angles. Totally. And so, not that a is, bad way. I think it's great. No, no, no. Yeah. Dude, this is so intriguing to me. <laughs> One, because all I care yeah, yeah. about is are you getting the outcome that you want, yes or no? And if yeah. you are, amazing. Yeah. And so, you're giving me new tools, new ways to think about this. Um, okay. So, just a quick yeah. breakdown of, of frame of reference. So, my hypothesis is that everybody's life is entirely controlled by their frame of reference. Okay the frame of reference, the best analogy would be to say that your frame of reference is a pair of glasses that you put on that distort the living shit out of Mm -hmm. the world that none of us Mm -hmm. have the um, option of taking the glasses off. Taking the glasses Mm -hmm. off would be to exist outside of your biology. Nobody's going to be able to do that. So you see the world in a hyper distorted way. Mm -hmm. Now, all of us over a lifetime of reward, punishment, um. Oh God, what'd you call it? Approval. Like there's all yeah. kinds of things Attention, that happen to you. Yeah. Attention, affection, affection approval. approval. Okay. So all of us are getting that constantly from the time that we are born until now. And we choose who to value that from. I and mean, you've talked about your parents yeah. and all that. Like, so anyway, you can choose, but- You, most people never become consciously aware of what's happening. And so the distortion of their lens happens slowly over time in ways that they simply recognize mistakenly as objective truth. So they think they see the world as it is, Mm -hmm. not through the warped lenses of their frame of reference. Now, once you realize that you can change the way the lenses warp the world, now you can start to shape your lenses based on um, action outcome. I did a thing and it had this outcome. And so it all becomes about your ability to predict the outcome of your actions, which is, uh, and we will get into sort of the physics of making money. But, um, to me, that's all about the ability to predict like what tests to run and how to interpret the tests and all that. So it ultimately boils down to your frame of reference. And if you don't get your frame of reference, right, the world will be so warped. You will not be able to predict the outcome of your behaviors. Most people end up in the mistaken loop of my emotions are the, the correct, which one needs to define. And they don't, my emotions are the correct response to this stimulus, even though it does not lead me towards my goals. And they spend their whole life spiraling in emotion. And that's why they're never able to get out of it and and begin to polish the lens in a way that actually gives them um, something useful. And what you're saying is none of that fucking matters. All that matters is whether they do the thing that's going to yield the outcome or not. I think it it just, I think it just saves a lot
0: of time and a lot of, because when we try to name these emotions, like, you know, what am I feeling? I'm kind of, it's like this whole conversation of not this, but like Mm -hmm. that self-conversation. It's like, what does that accomplish until you then decide to do something in the real world? Like nothing matters. And from a, from an outcome perspective, but I'll just share something with the audience because I have a, my, my first really big viral video was me just talking about like what, how you scale companies. And I, first thing I talk about is scaling the entrepreneur. Um, I have four frames that I go through in the, in the video. And I used to believe that, uh, entrepreneurs get limited by skills, What this is, this is what I used to believe, which is skills, uh, character traits and beliefs. Those are, that's what I used to say. I now believe that character traits are another way of saying when this happens, they do this, which is trainable, which makes it a skill. And then beliefs are when they are presented with this information, they then make this decision, which is yet again, another thing that can be trained because if you can learn it and it's a skill, which means it just comes to, as I see the world, it just comes down to skills. And just because it's harder to define uh, charisma because it might be 20 things. Cause we have a term that buckets 50 behaviors or whatever it is, just because it's harder to describe doesn't make it not a skill. And that's why like the soft stuff in business, like we probably agree that the soft stuff matters a ton in building a big company, the culture, right? McKinsey did a big study on this. Layla cites it a lot more than I do because she's usually on the, on the people side. Um, but, uh, in a normal business, two out of three strategies fail, like new initiatives fail in businesses where they have the soft stuff down one out of three strategies fail. So two out of three succeed. So you get twice the percentage likelihood of success on big strategic initiatives.
1: Do you have guess why?
0: Why is beyond, is beyond me. I, th- that was just, that was the, yeah, yeah I don't get into like, I don't about that. Yeah. I don't get into because this right. This it, is that. Yeah. Dr. Cash is my, my closest friend, like a brother. He jokes about it. He, he obsesses about why things work. I just care that it works. <laughs> um, and so, um, anyways, to, to circle back on this is that, people consider like leadership to be like a foo-foo or like communication skills. is like soft stuff, right? Sales metric, you know, like we have all these metrics driven things versus this. And it's just because it's harder to measure doesn't make it less important. And that was, that was a big realization for me is that it was just because it was harder for me to measure, but it doesn't make it less important. And so these skills that we're talking about um, we try to find ways to measure them by saying when I'm, when somebody walks, like, I'll give you an example with our video team. Um, we realized that we have much better direct camera work for our content. If, cause we were, we are like, man, we have this one guy on our team. He's so good to film with. And some of the other guys are just like, not as good. I'm not like as amped about it. Like, why is that? So we could control the things that we're going to walk into the, into the video session with like, okay, am I, did I sleep well? Did I, you know, all that stuff. If that's controlled and I still change, then it means there's something in the environment And so we then observed, actually, to be fair, we asked the, the superstar to observe what are the things you're doing? And so we noticed that while he's, while he's filming, he's like, yeah, he's like, yes, this is awesome. And so we said, write that down. And then what else do you do? It's like, oh, I, uh, I write down questions while you're talking while I'm, so he had to be able to multitask. So he had to bob his head while we're talking and write down follow-up questions for what we were saying. And so then all of a sudden it became this continuous flow of consciousness with literally constant reinforcement while we were filming visually. Mm-hmm. And so then we gave that SOP to the other people on the team and all of a sudden filming with them was way better. And so people be like, he's just got a great vibe. It just means that we don't know how to describe all the little behaviors that that person does and, and say, when I start talking, nod your head. Real, right? And when when there's something that you don't understand, write it down and ask me because I mean, somebody else doesn't understand it too. And it makes for great content. Oh, right. And so we had this big list. And then now we operationalized what it's like or what, what, you, what behaviors you have to do to become somebody who's good behind the camera, which means it's a skill that can be learned, like charisma, like patience, like confidence, like whatever. And so um, boiling it down that way has just demystified the world for me and just made it a lot easier to navigate because I don't have to spend 90% of my time trying to figure out why I'm doing whatever I'm doing. All I care about is whether I do what I need to do to get the outcome. And if I do the thing and I don't get the outcome, that means there's another variable that I haven't controlled or I don't understand. And if, you know, in the words of BF Skinner, um, if many variables are present, many variables must be studied. So sometimes we want to oversimplify it, but like there might be 10 cues in the environment that create a banger session. But if we have nine, is it better than the last one? That had three, probably. And so then we just make progress in that way.
1: Okay, so this is your superpower. This is the thing that, dude, I just look at you in awe. It's it's really, really incredible what you do. And I am so grateful to live on the timeline where the internet exists and someone like you with this insane ability comes out and just creates all this content. Um, you know, I am as obsessed with learning as you are. And so, um, yeah, it's just incredible. And to never stop learning is, is the great gift of being a human. Okay. So the thing that I think that you're just unreasonably good at is taking a very complex problem that maybe I'm spending too much time and the why is this happening and Mm -hmm. you're just skipping past that and you're going, okay, I'm going to break it down into these, do this, when this happens do this, when that happens do that, um, I'm going to try to get to the physics of business through a weird question, but keep in mind for anybody watching that's, that doesn't know my story. I I've been in the world of entrepreneurship for over 20 years. I've had some pretty incredible success. So this is a, this is a well-educated question from, I've been in this for a long time. So it's going to seem like a weird angle to attack it. This is for the audience more than you um, hang with me because if we really can dissect this, I think it will help people understand the magic thing that you do. You rewrote your book completely four times. Mm-hmm. Something happened when you read it the first time, the first time that you realized I have to start over completely Yeah. that thing, whatever that was, I promise you, I have the chills just thinking about it. That is the thing that makes you good at business. And so I need to understand what abstract, use the book as an example, sure. but I, I want people to understand this is an abstracted version of something very important, which is you were able, you did a thing. Yeah. I'm guessing you had to do the thing in order to find the part that wasn't right yeah. But you were able to then identify that part, reconceptualize, get more intelligent as you did it again. It's what I call the physics of progress, yeah. but like what your ability to learn and break into constituent parts is, is the thing certainly I want to learn from. So when you reread what yeah. you first wrote, what clicked? Do you remember? Well, I got feedback. So I sent
0: the first, which was really the first draft that I ended up sending to people was V9 um of the book. Had you
1: rewritten it all yeah. over? Yeah. How many times have you rewritten about oh, that? So
0: that was like I had gone through, I mean, I start back at the top, I re-edit everything again. Start back at the top without feedback. Correct.
1: That's the one I want to know about. Okay. The first time you read through the book, you yeah. like uh, I have to reconceive yeah. of the whole approach. Yeah. What happened in that moment? Uh it wasn't clear
0: or wasn't simple enough. That's that's it. Like and um I like to use this example because it, it might make sense for a lot of the audience. If I were to say, edit a six assume you know how to edit videos, just for the per- the simplicity. If I said, go edit this video, someone might edit it and I say, get you know, edit this video in 30 minutes. And they edit the short clip and they give it back to me. And I say, Okay, if I give you two hours, what else would you do? And they're like, Oh, well, I might do this and I might do this, and I might do this. I'm like, okay, go do that and come back. And they come back and I'm like, okay. If I gave you two weeks for this 30 second clip, what else would you do? Like, I might reimagine the entire thing and actually lay it out in this way. It would take way more time, but like, I think it would actually still be better. It's like, cool, do that. And they come back. And then when there's no more loose I'm like what else could you do to make this better? At that point, to me, the work is done. I have exhausted my level of skill and understanding. Like I can't make the leads book better at current. Now I'll bet you in a year. I'll think of some things that I could have used to make it better. But at present moment, there's nothing that I can think that I would either cut or add in or break down or add a visual for, uh, or lower the reading level on, uh, to make sure that everyone would understand it. And so whenever I have those, like, it's like a hangnail, you know what I mean? It's like this little splinter where I'm like, this could be better.
1: Does it start with a feeling or with a fact?
0: Um, it's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I think I read something, and I think that wasn't as clear as it was in my. It's not as clear reading it as it is in my head. So, what's the discrepancy? Like this term is confusing, or this phrase doesn't make sense, or I need to break this into a paragraph, or whatever it is. Um, and honestly, it's just doing that. Like it took me. <laughs> it's funny. I had this this cover letter that I was going to include in every book, um, and it was one page. And I think I put uh, twenty five hours into the one page. Um, and it's, it's interesting because people hear that and they're like, that's crazy. I'm like, to me, 25 hours doesn't count as one unit of work yet. Um, (laughs) thinking hundreds dude, you got it? Yeah. hundred percent. Um, and so I ended up actually not using the cover letter, which is even more ironic. Mm -hmm. Um, but when my team saw how many iterations went through it, I was like, every single person will read this part. Now chapter, you know, the last chapter in the book, maybe it's 20% or maybe it's 13% or whatever it is. We'll get to the last chapter. But the first page, every single person who reads the entire book will read that page. Every person who reads half the book will read that page. Every person who reads only the first chapter will read that page. And so it's like, if anything, I should put more time into that. But I approached just about every page of the book that way. It was just that my team was able to see it on one page publicly. And so that's, we, we wrote, my editor and I, Dr. Kashi, um, wrote the book because we wanted it to be around in 100 years. And so that was the frame was like, it has to be, it has to work now. And the easiest way to know if it's going to work in hundred years is does it work hundred years ago? Could someone a hundred years ago read this book and it still help them advertise better? Could someone read this book a hundred years ago and help them make an offer that more people say yes to? If the answer is yes, then we pass that litmus test. And that's actually really hard. It's a very simple sentence to say, very hard to do, especially when you're talking about media, content, platforms, like all of these different things. Um, and so- I think it's having an exceptionally high bar for what you, what you want to do. And having been rewarded in the past, like if this had been my first book, it wouldn't have been as good, but offers was my first book. And I wrote offers in one fifth of the time as it took
1: me to write leads. Because you didn't hold yourself to as high of a standard because you knew what better looked like. I'd
0: never been rewarded for writing a book before.
1: And so once I was rewarded, the amount of time I'm willing to
0: put towards something to get rewarded again extends. So it's like intermittent reinforcement from a behavior. Like that's how you get addicted to the slot machine, whatever. It's like you reward the first time immediately. The next time you reward in 30 seconds, the next time humans have a, have a longer attribution than dogs do just for context. Um, but you can continue to extend reinforcement until eventually you can eliminate it. And the, and the behavior will persist, which is kind of cool, which is
1: very cool. Yeah. Okay, I want to. So, no, 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 I don't but, know what you're apologizing yeah. for. Okay, so we're at the beginning of uh, what yep. will hopefully be a magically delicious breakdown of how yeah. Alex Hormozy, uh hormozyizes things. Yeah. Okay, so what I took away from that um, is that step one is going to be start with the goal. So when I think about business, Um, you need to understand what your goal is because you're, and this, this goes for life as well, boys and girls. If you do not have your North star, if you don't know what is guiding everything, then you're going to be adrift. And so when you think about you and okay, this is definitely me putting my language on you. Here's how I experienced that first moment. I read something and something feels off. So for me, it always starts with a feeling, but I know that feeling translates into a fact. And so I'm going to try to find the fact. And so you were saying, "Mm, this isn't as clear as it could be. And so now you have this North star. I'm trying to write a book that's going to be around in a hundred years. Again, I'm I'm maybe connecting dots that don't line up. And so you'll correct me anywhere I go wrong. Uh, we've got the idea of the, the guy with the one goat who's sleeping with this under his pillow, which dude, you cannot imagine how much, A, that makes me like you even more than I already did. Uh, and B, that's so important for people to have like a person that they're thinking about that will make all the fight worth it. Uh, okay, so be around in a hundred years. The guy with the goat needs to really understand this. I read it and because I know what my goal is, I have a feeling, a trained feeling that something is off. That's my again, this is me. I understand you're different. Um, (laughs) this is my feeling is my subconscious speaking to me. It's already picked up on the problem. I can feel it, and now I'm gonna translate that into something. What I really need people to understand is uh you're gonna take all of Alex's advice and you're still gonna fail. And the reason you're gonna fail is because you're not yet good at the thing that you're good at, which is. Um, finding the fact and saying, Oh, this is the very thing that's broken. Now, as you have said, so I'll just channel you for a second. You're you're gonna suck at this for a while, but don't worry, totally. just keep doing it and mm-hmm. you will get better at identifying the fact. Okay. Yeah. Given how much you're nodding, I'm gonna assume so far I'm on the right track here. Uh so how do you nodding. Yeah, exactly, right? Okay. Sure. Uh how do you identify that fact? So what is is it just repetition? You've just yeah. done it a thousand times. Yeah. So you can either have uh, basically it's
0: called contingency-based reinforcement, which is the environment corrects you, right? You put the thing on the market, no one buys it, no one watches it, whatever it is, right? Um, the other is that you get feedback from somebody who has more knowledge than you, and so you can either have a person give you direct feedback on you know listens to your sales call and says, hey, you know, try this next time, um, and ideally that's where the feedback loop is. Like if if I have a one-on-one with somebody and I give them that feedback a week later, it's much more powerful to be. They're an hour after the call, like the moment the call's over and even more powerful if you're sitting there with them and you can be like, say like this. And then you get the feedback loops way faster because they'll remember it. because they it'll be in the moment of trying to learn. Like, so if we're trying to teach sales and I'm going to, I'm going to come back. But if, uh, if we're trying to teach sales, cause we've got three brick and mortar chains in our portfolio, um, teaching frontline sales, like very transactional, like front desk walks in, go here, whatever. If you train them offsite, which is what most companies do, then they will remember it better offsite on site. So you want to train them in the environment that they have to do the behavior because they'll have environmental cues while they're learning. Just like if you, if you study for a test, if you can study in the actual chair that you're going to take the test in, you'll remember more of your answers. What? Oh, for sure. What? Yeah. If you ever, have you ever uh, been on the phone and like had some conversation and then you walk the same path a week later? Yeah. And then as you see a tree, you're like, oh yeah, I was thinking about, because it's, because you learn and you the have the palace idea right. geography. That's right. interesting.
1: Actually, now that you say that, that makes a lot of sense. I wonder if it's different for guys. I don't want to derail us. Yeah, yeah. I'll get guys it. have spatial memory. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> interesting. All right. Step one, we'll start with the goal. We went through that. Identify the fact. Yeah. Okay. How no do we feedback, get
0: contingency versus uh, versus individual? So either either your environment uh, gives you that feedback because it didn't work, or somebody who knows more and has done it before multiple times can recognize the pattern for you. So when you uh, say like find the fact. I would have just, the only thing I would have maybe tweaked on the earlier uh, preface was uh, the feeling is because of pattern recognition. I know this isn't right because it hasn't been right. It looks like something that has been right again in the past. And we always have something called successive approximation. So, like, success of successive approximation, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, girls named Tiffany are crazy, right? And I meet a second Tiffany's girl named Tiffany
1: blowing up the feed right now,
0: right? Yes. <laughs> second girl named Tiffany uh also crazy but looks different but i'm like wait a second i know tiffany's you're all crazy right like so you have a successor product like you learn it's a silly example but um that is like that's how we can generalize learning and um the bigger the the more depth you have in terms of the principles around any skill the more you can generalize learnings from one thing to another
1: okay that makes a lot of sense pattern recognition huge uh getting people to help you short circuit that huge okay so um getting into the reinforcement. yeah. What I want to understand is um, how uh, I'm going to ask it, yeah. and then we'll see if I think I know <laughs> the answer, but um, the real thing you're trying to figure out when you're doing the testing is what would need to change yeah. in order for this to work. Yeah. Um, The reason I say it like that is because the language I would have naturally used is why didn't this work? Yeah. But you don't care about why you just want to know what would I have to change in order to get this to work? How do you, we'd use experts if they're available. Sure. uh, But if we're just testing, let's say we have to brute force this. How do you go through that? You, uh, I've heard you say the number of tests that I thought we're going to crush and they just absolutely (laughs) tank. So you, you thought you had it and all you get is an answer that says, no. Yeah. So all you have is no. Yeah. How do you turn that no into a new action item? Yeah. So um, I think it's breaking down didn't work
0: from binary to a continuum. So it's not, it didn't work. It's, it didn't work well enough. And so that's a huge one when it comes to like running ads, making cold calls, whatever it is to get customers, whatever you want to do. It's not yes or no. It's how well, right? And that just says it's an easier frame. And so then you have to go, at least from my perspective, you break it down to first principles of, okay, what has to happen? for someone to buy. It's like, well So that's just a whole lump of psychology right there. Behaviors. They have to see it. They don't see it or hear it, they will not buy it because they won't know you exist. Okay. That so and that luckily like within the marketing world because that's what the book is about is measurable. Like did the impression get displayed? Did the email get delivered? That is you can see that on any any platform. The next one is like did they engage with it? so that's a behavior they engaged which would be they opened the email or they opened the email and clicked the link inside of my email um they t- clicked the ad to then get to you know the landing page whatever it is so they engaged to a degree um the next, you know, the next thing is that they're going to like in order for me to contact them in the future, then I need to have some way to contact them. So they have to give that to me. Um, if I don't already have it, like an outbound thing, you'd already have their contact information. You want to reply. If you're running an ad, then they need to give you the contact information so that you can reach out to them. Um, but it's really breaking down. Forget what they think. Forget what they feel. Like I, I wholeheartedly reject the like there are seven stages of awareness. It's like, how the fuck do you know? Like, well, they have to have a desire. And then it's like, how many people have bought things without desire? Tons. All we know is that when they see this thing, they take their wallet out and they purchase, period. Right? And the same thing with like a sales script. Like I truly believe that if you knew every single variable that it took for somebody to buy, you get 100% of people to buy. Now, the problem is that we don't have every variable every time for every person. And so we do the best approximation we can to hit as many of those piano keys to get them to purchase, right? Right? And so that is how I, that's how I approach all of them, whether it's, you know, what do I figure out what to sell? Which is the offers book. Uh, Who do I sell it to? Which is the leads book. Um, And then, you know, future books will answer one singular question. And the leads book was fundamentally, and the reason it's called leads instead of advertising is because I test advertising versus leads and leads beat advertising. Even though the book is fundamentally about advertising and divine advertising, it's the process of making known. And so did I make it known? Great. I advertised. Like she advertised that she was with that guy all last night. You're like, oh, she met, she let it be known, right? She made people aware. And so there's only four ways you can do that, right? You can do one-on-one and you can do one-to-many. Like I can tell you one-on-one in an environment where no one else can see me, or I can put it on a bulletin board. Worked a thousand years ago, works today. Uh, and then I can do that in public or I can do that in private. So you've got, sorry, I just repeated the same. Uh, you can do that to people who know you and people who don't know you. So you've got one-to-one to people who know you, which is warm reach outs. You've got one-to-one to people who don't know you, which is cold reach-outs. You've got uh, one-to-many to people who know you, which is making content to your audience. And then you've got one-to-many one to to people who don't know you, which is paid ads. You rent other people's audiences and you display your thing. You let them know about your stuff. And so break it down that way. Like there's no other way that someone will buy unless they find out about you, period. Fight me. No one, like, no one can fight that. And that's basically what the process of writing these books comes down to is I want to make a series of of statements that are, that are beyond reproach so that no one can argue with them. Like you, you cannot get someone to buy unless they have given you a way to contact them. So like you you walk down that, that logic tree, and then you figure out which of these didn't happen. So I ran an ad and I didn't make money. Well, there's like a hundred things that have to happen between between them seeing it and them giving you money. So we just look at, and we start at the front. Because if you don't get to the third step, there's no point in trying to fix the third step because you haven't gotten people to even click. And so the first thing you know we'll talk about is like, how do we create a hook? How do we create a headline that people that will capture someone's attention? That's it. And then from there, it's like if you master that part or get good enough at that part, then you move to the second part. and i this has worked very well for me because then it demystifies the concept of success, and I stop judging myself as being a good or bad. It's just like, how likely is the thing that I did here, get them to move to the next step? Okay. How likely is it if I show this thing, they get to move to the next step and you just keep going until eventually you're like, Oh wait, I made money. And then you
1: have all the, the pieces together and then you do as many times as you can. It's going to actually, first, let me address something. So, uh, to say things that are beyond reproach, that's what you said. I want to make sure that I'm saying things that are beyond reproach. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's like another way of saying it's got to all be first principles. hundred percent. Cool. Makes sense. So you're trying to boil things down to this is true. Does not matter what people say, think, believe Ah, it just is true. Okay. Yeah. That I think is critically important for anybody that wants to scale a business. Um, you believe that we live in a deterministic universe. Okay. I actually don't even know what that means. Okay. So cause and effect, pure okay. and simple. Sure. billiard balls bouncing around a table yeah. that behaviors are the the cause of a behavior is knowable uh i
0: wouldn't i'd say there is a cause of the behavior i don't know if we can know it necessarily we can try and control as many of the environmental factors but i don't know if we can say this
1: is why well i'm trying to avoid this okay is yeah, why, yeah, so that, yeah, yeah and get to uh if if the cause and effect. Uh, god is that a pure why okay <laughs> For, for Alex, okay. I'm going to disagree with you violently based cool. on your own principles. Cool. Uh, that none of what you do would work if it couldn't be known what you needed to do to elicit a given response. Otherwise, everything would be entirely random. And so what I think you know, and what makes you so good at overcoming sales objections is that you know, if I can get them, oh God, I don't know how you would so explain the it. the difference but, between knowing why and knowing that. So this is cool. I just care about that. And so this conversation, I know
0: that if I say these
1: 12 questions,
0: when this person walks in the door, the likelihood that they will buy is 38%. Do I know why they buy? No. Yeah. I know that if I do these things, this will happen.
1: Perfect. Deterministic. Okay. So uh, (laughs) that, that helps me to understand how you go about doing this. So it seems to me, what you were doing is you were trying to map behavioral cause and effect, which is why at the beginning of the episode you even said, "Like I'm really into behavioral psychology." Behavioral psychology, perfect. A personal obsession of mine because I also believe that we live in a deterministic universe, which calls into question free will. We're going to set that aside for now. Yeah. Uh, and so, oh, it totally does. Do you think that free will exists? Less and less by the day. Yeah, I I think eventually we all get to the point where it's like. It can't. Yeah. Then you exist. get into very interesting questions about morality.
0: Yes. Right. Which we won't get into. Correct.
1: Yeah. At least not now, maybe at the yeah. at the end. But. Yeah.
0: It's okay if you kill somebody, if it's temporary insanity, but uh-huh. if it was premeditated, it's bad. But to what, so where do we draw the line of, okay, that means that there was environmental conditions that made this person act in this way that they wouldn't otherwise do. But it's like, were there not environmental conditions that created the person that, that trained these behaviors that then created the murder?
1: correct? I'll just, I'll just but now fine. as, <laughs> as marketers, if, if we can understand Taking money, right? right? If we can understand <laughs> what triggers behaviors yeah. now, now the, you can truly predict and execute because ultimately yeah. that's what this game yeah. is. And the feedback loop, that I think people either know about you or intuit about you is that you're really good at this process. I did a thing, it did not yield the results that I wanted and I was very shrewd about the next thing that I tried and getting people shrewd about, because there's going to be 10, it's really 10,000, there's going to be a lot of things that you could do when the first thing comes back and you only got 38% of what you were looking for and you want to get as close to 100 as you can. So being able to do the next most logical thing, mm-hmm. logic as defined as I have a goal and this is the thing most likely yeah. to get me closest to it. Um, the ability to do that rapidly, yeah. I will, I don't know if you'll agree with this, but I'll add bolt on to your definition of intelligence Okay. that if you're, um, you said the rate, rate at of which learning. you change your behavior yep. is, is the definition of intelligence. I will say That's the, okay. the rate at which you can identify the the most meaningful next step or the most likely to be mm-hmm. successful next step is also uh, intelligence. Not that that really matters, but this is the game people are yeah. playing. And this- I would this... say it chunks up. What does that mean? So, uh,
0: the ra- so learning is defined by s- similar condition, new behavior, right? Mm-hmm. And so if I have a fast rate of learning, means that I have a new behavior that I do in that condition, the only way I can have that new behavior
1: is have some sort of knowledge. So I think it chunks up to the same- Got it, got it, got it. Okay, I see what you're saying. Um, prerequisite. So- Right. So if these two are the same idea manifesting in slightly different ways as you come back down, um that I think is what people are learning from you and why you're so effective. Um so the the question becomes do you have a methodology for identifying the next most useful test to run or is it true this is all just going to come back to the same answer experts and repetition?
0: It is. And then, um, I did try to create a, an operationalized version of that from a funnel perspective, cause I realized that some people don't have the money or whatever to test more times than need to, you know, succeed faster. And so I operate off the theory of constraints, meaning that every system is constrained in some way. And then if you simply identify what the constraint is and deconstrain it, it will grow until it's ne- next natural constraint. Can you give me a concrete example? Um, let's say you, uh, you've got a, a, a Shopify store that sells uh, coffee mugs, uh, And you spend $1,000 a month and you make $3,000 back uh, on on the mugs. So the constraint of the system at some point will either be I run out of mugs. That could be the constraint. Uh, It could be that I just need to spend more money. Cause that might be the constraint today. And then I spend enough that I run out of mugs or I spend enough that my cost per impression exceeds my profit. Cause I go to colder and colder audiences. So then the constraint there might be like, I need to build a brand or I need to get trusted sources to increase the likelihood that increase the awareness, let more people know about my stuff so that when they do see my ad, they're more likely to make the purchase. Um, and so it, it's really being able to accurately identify what the constraint is. And so for me, uh, when I walked this through the book, I said, usually, uh, the constraint that I will focus on in a funnel, uh, is usually the one that has uh, the largest incremental, has the largest throughput difference with the smallest incremental change. And so it's like, if I have, uh, you know, 50% of people who are scheduling, uh, 30% of people who are showing, or let's say 25% of people are showing, and then, you know, 30% of people are closing. It's like, okay, if I'm looking at these things, which one am I going to attack? Well, I'll probably attack the 25% show rate because if I get a 10% uh, or 25% increase, just for math's sake, uh, I would double the throughput. If I increase my schedule rate from 50 to 75, which is a 25% increase from an absolute perspective, um, I would only have a relative difference of 50%. So I would make, I would get more bang for my buck by focusing on the constraint, which is the one that the smallest incremental improvement
1: increases the throughput the most. And that you can use math to find out. Yeah, this is um th- this is business for people listening. So my obsession is helping people understand how to solve novel problems, not problems you've never heard of before, problems no one has ever heard of before. And this is where you have to get down to first principles thinking. Anything that can be turned into math should be uh, something that we talk a lot about here. Right. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, uh, because then you're pulling it out of the realm of emotions. I know I've been talking a lot about emotions, but, um, I'm only trying to identify that as a, as a predictive mechanism for the next thing, sure. which may be just where you and I, um, don't see the world the same. So for me to understand what the next smartest thing is, you think, you think, uh, behavioral, Behavior. What's the behavior I need to do? That may be more useful. And I will really be thinking about this after this um, discussion. The way that I've always thought about it is if I can understand the psychology in that moment, I'll right. be able to predict the behavior. Right. Um, so maybe of time or maybe necessary. Maybe you intuit it. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Time will tell on that. But um, it's, it's very, very interesting. Okay. So people are... Um, they need a rubric by which they figure out what the next thing that they need to test is you've just offered one which is to understand the limiting factor mm-hmm. when you understand the limiting factor um then you're able to think mathematically and remove said limiting factor or at least know where to um approach that problem i think that's incredibly helpful um as so when you're explaining all this i your business model at acquisition.com is a pure understanding of even though you're able to, even though you're willing to give all of your secrets away, Mm -hmm. there's still going to be a gap in execution. Why? Why are you better at this than most people?
0: Um, I've done it more times.
1: That's it. You really believe that? Yeah. I've done it a lot of times. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, I think that's a big part of it. And then I think that there are elements that we have that are kind of competitive modes, which we purposefully um, set up. Like we are building this brand so that we can attract the best talent. So like if you have, let's say, a chain of nail salons, right? Which is a company I'm I'm looking at investing in right now. Um, So if you're listening to this, you're great. Love your company. Um, And and so you have a chain of nail salons and you will probably struggle to get A plus talent to go to that. I will not struggle to get A plus talent to place for you because they will want to work in an acquisition.com company because they know there's a huge backing behind it. They know that we're going to be shooting big. We're going to try and do big stuff. And they might think the founder might be a first-time founder of getting to a business of that size, but we are not. And so they have a higher likelihood. We, they have a higher confidence that we will help the business grow to a much higher degree, meaning that their career can grow. They have more opportunities. It'll build their resume, all that kind of stuff. And so from a competitive mode perspective, we're able to get better people. And if we get better people, we build better companies. And then that becomes a flywheel. Because the more companies we take on, the more we grow, the more success stories we have, the more talent wants to come, and it just it just continues to feed itself. And that's something that continues to compound in time, and
1: that's purposely built as a long-term competitive advantage. Okay, talk to me about leverage. I think that's an important part of this puzzle. So yeah. there's a couple moments in your story around leverage. Um, one is is the guy that told you, Hey, you shouldn't be in the gym business. You should be teaching people how to do this. Uh, and then the other moment, at least for me on the outside, um, was when you realized I'm not going to help these guys launch their businesses. So I'm going to sell them the course that I put together. Um, what's the, what is leverage? Why does it matter? And how do people get some? Okay. So first off, just for the, just for the audience,
0: um, it was much closer to a franchise than a course. Uh, so it was, it was a licensing model. So we had, it was more, it was closer to licensing plus services than it was a course, just cause it would just do, a, we don't even sell courses. So like, I think that that's because there's a lot of people in that space that follow my stuff. And so they make that assumption, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. And I only set the record straight for, for clarity's, um, beyond that, um, leverage as we define it is the difference between what you put in and what you get out. And so if I, uh, and it's volume times leverage equals output. So it's how many times you do something times how much you get for each time you do it equals output. So if I do a hundred sales calls and I have no skill, then I will get fewer scale fewer sales than somebody who does the same hundred sales calls and has much higher skill. So skills create leverage. You get more for what you put in. At a simple at a at a, at a basic level. Um, but it works with anything. So if you're trying to invest, it's like, if I can invest a smaller amount of money and get a bigger return, then I have more leverage, right? The reason debt is considered leverage is because you can put 20% of the cash in and get 80% as a loan and buy a building five times bigger than you normally could. So you get more for what you put in. Um, and so there are degrees of leverage and this is wholeheartedly taken from Naval. Um, and I'll probably have to think more about it because I haven't written the book on leverage yet. So I'm borrowing. Um, but I, I remember it as the four C's he has different words for it, but you've got collaboration, capital code and content. Those are the four C's of leverage. Um, like we make this video right now, we make this podcast and we put X amount of effort in, but we get unlimited upside on it. Many millions of people can see it or one person can see it, but we get more for what we put in, the better and better we get at this. Uh, code, you can write a, You can write an app one time and then unlimited amount of people can use the code or use the app. Uh, collaboration is I say, okay, I will now teach 20 guys to sell and I will get 10 times the output that I had if I were selling. And so I might not take any sales calls, but make more sales than anybody else does because I have more leverage. Um, and so a big, you know, through line of the leads book is... There's the core four, which is the first four things that I explained to you, one-on-one, one-to-many, strangers and friends, or people who know you, people who don't. And then the other four, which are the four lead getters, people who let other people know on your behalf, which by their very nature have more leverage because you don't have to do it. So if you can get your customers to tell other customers about your stuff using the core four, because they also have to use that, like a customer can only tell a customer by telling somebody through warm, warm outreach, posting content about it, running an ad, unlikely, and doing cold outreach, also unlikely. But they could do one of those four things. And that's complete. That completes the advertising cycle. So you do something to get a lead getter who then does the core four and around and around you go. So I could also make ads to get affiliates who then run ads to get customers for me. But if I, uh, go and spend, let's say I spend all my time and I get 10 sales a month, um, of customers, right. And let's say each customer is worth a thousand dollars to me. Great. I'm going to cap at $10,000 a month. If I use the same effort of marketing and sales and I sell 10 affiliates so still still same number of conversations same number of humans but I sell 10 affiliates per month and then those affiliates each month after that get me one customer each well then the first month I'll get $10,000 because each one of those guys got me a customer but then I'm still going to work and get another 10 affiliates next month so then next month I'm going to have last month's 10 plus this month's 10 so now I'll have 20 new customers. And if I do it again, I have 30 new customers. And so I am using the same amount of work to get more customers than I divide I directly went through it. And so that is that is a basic example of how leverage works uh, within the context of advertising to get customers in a business.
1: Mm. So what is the what is the way that you think about um, constructing a a business or the way that you're going to structure something. So when I first asked that question about leverage, you, you said something really interesting, which was, Hey, I just want to point out to everybody that that was a licensing model. It meant something to you to make a a distinction there, which I have a feeling there's, there's a little bit of hormosy sauce in there that we would all benefit from understanding what, what drove that decision. Why does that matter to you? You mean saying that? structuring the business to be. So, um, this is exactly what went through my head when you said that was, Oh shit. Like he actually had a more keen moment of understanding than has come across at least to me. And I've heard you tell that story multiple times. Um, and I've heard you say, Oh, it was a licensing thing, but it never, I don't know. It never landed for me, but this time I realized it really meant something to you. Um, so there was a keen insight there. What, what was the keen insight? why Why do it as a licensed model instead of just saying, oh, this is the course, go use it. If
0: we added assistance and services where we would maybe run the ads for them and we would train their sales teams, which we do, um, and we would give them the ads to run for their local area and we would help them build the landing pages to attract customers and we would uh, give them the white label, you know, meal plans, grocery list, food for, for preparation, you know, instructions for their clients. If we do all of those things, then we would increase the likelihood that they would succeed and make more money. And I can charge based on the a fraction of the value that I can produce for the majority of my customers. And so if the average, so right now, Jim Launch, till a company, still continues to grow. Um, the average Jim uh, Lord, which is what we call the community. Jim Lord? Lord, yeah. Lording. Um, the average Jim Lord uh, adds $200,000. I say to shoot, I have to know the metric a lot. Yeah, it adds it, it, this is it. There you go, uh, adds $200,000 a year, um, to their business and a hundred thousand that's profit. There, there, that's what the, the math is. So, the average Jim lord adds a hundred thousand dollars a year in profit. I think it's a little bit more like 118, whatever. And we can charge a percentage of the increased net profit that we are help we are able to help them generate on average. Mm. And now we have to usually charge a significant. Uh, discount on that because half the people are going to be below the average. So for the people who are, for for half of them, it's an even crazier deal. You know, they, they, they pay for the license model. They don't have to spend money to test ads. We would say, we already spent 50 grand in 20 markets. These are the winning ads this month. And they could just run them through the system and then just collect the money on the other side. And so they get the speed and they don't have to have, they don't have to taste the test, you know, the, the, the failed ad test because we would incur that cost, but we were able to distribute that cost at scale. So no individual gym owner could spend $50,000 to test ads in all these different markets. We could, and then give it to a thousand gyms. And so, th- and again, from a media perspective, uh, leverage, we could do that one time, and a thousand gyms can do it at no incremental cost to us. And so it is a very profitable business. It still is a very profitable
1: business. All right. When you had that moment, and I'm sure people know this part of your story. You had the moment where you're fucking desperate. You've lost everything twice. You're scrambling to make money. And you tell the guy, I'm just going to give him a number that's high so that he doesn't bother me with it. Uh, Six grand. He's like, yes. Had you already thought of it as a licensed model or you do those first, like whatever, 150 grand that you made uh, with the seven people or something. I forget the exact details of the story, but it was like seven people that you'd promised to do their gym. And instead you sell them this model. Had you already thought of it in that moment as a licensed play I had, um, I just,
0: I think honestly, a lot of, a lot of the, the words around like what we did came from outside sources because people saw how quickly we grew and we were in a world that was direct response marketing. And so many people in that world sell courses. So they use the words that they know how to describe something. Mm. Um, but it was much closer and arguably like significantly more support than what a franchise does for a franchisee. And that's how we structured. I wanted to be, I wanted to provide more service, make them
1: more money for a lower fee than a franchise would and potentially this is smarter. And um, I'm really, my goal in this part of the interview is to help people map the models that you have running in your head that allow you to do the things that you do. Um, Because even from my perspective, it's very unique, it's very rare. You just have a a real ability to break things down to what I'll call the essence of the thing. The anybody listening, I will tell you right now, the biggest mistake you're going to make is what I'll call a category error. People fail to understand what the true essence of the thing is, um, which I am as guilty of as anybody. So I don't put myself um, outside of this, but have spent a lot of time trying to understand my own failings and shortcomings. Um, So as I'm hearing you tell the story, I'm thinking, okay, one to identify the license thing is very shrewd. And so trying to map how you conceptualize the thing feels tied to me to the, the same idea of um, understanding that an individual gym cannot afford to do the market testing that you can afford to do. And therefore, if you do it, you now have a moat, you have leverage, you have a service that you can sell. That is understanding the true nature of the beast. Yeah. Do you ever stop and model the na- the nature of this thing is And then you break into constituent parts. Yeah. What does that process look like? And is it universal or is it nail salon nature of, Mm -hmm. uh, gym nature of? Yeah.
0: Um, I, I boil it down to something probably hilariously simple, uh, which is number of potential units sold times gross profit that that's and then and then the you know the tertiary piece is what upfront or capital investments required to be able to, that would enable that right like if i had if i had to go buy a machine that could manufacture widgets that have you know phenomenal margins because the value that people get from it is you know ten dollars and i can make them for 10 cents then that's a you know great business but if i can only sell it to you know, one town in Alaska, because it's a really unique fishing tool that only works in their environment. Uh, there's elements of that that would make it an attractive business, but there's elements that won't. So it's like, it'd probably be a very small, very profitable business that could not scale. Um, nothing wrong with that. There's definitely huge place in the economy for things like that. Um, but when I'm looking at opportunities, that's what I would, that is the simplest way, um, of looking at it for me is number of potential units sold, uh, gross profit per unit. And then what I'll call competitive dynamics as the, as the third part, which is like, if you look at, you know, cell phones, it's like, what does it cost them to add another cell phone to this massive network? Probably not a lot. Is it really sticky? Yes. Do people stay and pay for a long time? Yes. Okay. So there's probably a lot of gross profit to be made there. Um, and how many people need, you know, cell phone service a lot, right? It's like, okay, so that might be really attractive, but the competitive dynamics is that I would have to have, I don't know, a billion dollars, or I'd have to partner with somebody that would allow me to white label. So this is when you get into the competitive dynamics of like, okay, well, is there, is there value in creating a brand and wrapping on top of an existing solution and say, Hey, I might be better at marketing and sales than you. And you already have the infrastructure to deliver cell phone services to people nationwide, or maybe just in this region. Um, and I will do what I'm good at and you deliver on the back end and we structure some sort of deal where, you know, the more volume I get, the more of the economics I get to, you know, participate in. So those are kind of the, the, the big three variables that I look at if I'm just trying to analyze a business uh, in terms of opportunity. And the and the big piece that I think a, a lot of folks will miss out on is when I say uh, gross profit, um, I'm talking lifetime gross profit. And so that's where, like, I have less care about recurring versus not recurring. Um, you know, if from a, and this gets into the push and pull of selling a business or not selling a business, but, you know, if if, uh, if a company has something that's super recurring, let's say it's a service like accounting or bookkeeping, Let's say there's really high, you know, gross profits on that because we've automated a ton and we've got some uh, offshore workers doing, you know, the remainder of it. We have really amazing margins and it's really sticky. Um, that could be a super high gross profit business. But at the same time, if you're Elon Musk and you sell everyone a Tesla, and even if everyone buys one Tesla, that might be still more gross profit than you know the bookkeeping services. Just as a completely contrasting example. Um, and so I just look at what is the lifetime gross profit, and some of that might be better structured for recurring. And some of it might be better structured for a one-time transaction. Um, and then I know I'm going into like stuff that will probably bore the audience, but if you're looking at the business as a product, then it, then it also becomes, you have two customers, you have the customer that you're selling the product to, and then you have the customer that you're going to sell the company to. Um, and most customers who are investors who are buying companies feel better (laughs) buying something that is recurring in nature. Uh, because then they feel that the likelihood that they it will continue to make money in the future is higher. Even if the TAM's huge, all that stuff, it, they still feel they sleep better on it. And so you get a premium for the company. Um, and so that's, that's kind of big picture how we think through what companies we want to invest in, uh, or at least the opportunities that we could look at. And then from a personal investing perspective is how much value can we add to that specifically? Like I probably wouldn't take on a wireless cell phone company likely, but if there's a, you know, a brick and mortar chain of services that's like med spas or beauty or you know health and fit like that's my wheelhouse. Like we know how to crush those, and so it decreases my risk because I know that even from a value add perspective, if I can five x the company because I know how to how to build those marketing and sales processes at scale at the unit level, then the likelihood that I don't get a tremendous return is really low.
1: Mm. Okay, there's two things um, there. One, sorry, that's soliloquy. No, no, no. This is this is amazing, and I, I hope people are taking this. As it's intended. So in fact, let me, uh, let me give people a frame of reference. This is the way that you should be thinking about what we're talking about right now, which is, um, all of these things abstract so that you can think through novel problems and big data sets with a few filters. So you can make quick decisions on massive amounts of data. What do you mean by that in terms of what we're talking about right now? So
0: if I, if I, so if if I, so I get every day on my phone, I'll have a list of all the companies that have applied at acquisition.com and they'll be ranked in terms of like, this one looks the most interesting. These ones are less interesting and here's why we didn't think they were interesting for my team. And so I will basically go pass, 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 second call and ask these things. And then they'll go and do that. Um, for me to be able to quickly make the decision because otherwise I would, I would be inundated with the amount of data that I have to take in. I have to have filters that are faster, just LTV to CAC ratio. Like, I feel like you can boil down most businesses to what does it cost you to get a customer? What do you make from that customer over the lifetime period? That's it. Now, Tam is, you know, how many of those customers can you sell short? But like, if I just had, if I could only look at one metric in a business, that's what I would look at.
1: Okay. So most of the entrepreneurs that are listening to this or people that want to be an entrepreneur, no, I think they'll get that, but they're, that's not where they're going to be at in their journey. That's no. certainly a more advanced thing. Um, so the part that I want to yeah. bring you back to is they're going to, they're, they're going to be thinking through how do I start a business? Sure. What business do I start? Sure. Um, how do I identify the opportunity? And so there's a couple things that you were just going through that I think are really relevant. One of them is how you identify the business model. Mm-hmm. So, um, looking at a total addressable market, uh, lifetime value of the customer versus what it costs you to get them, all a hundred percent, they will have to figure that out, or they're going to end up doing something dumb, chasing a small opportunity, whatever. Yeah. Um, but the all of those metrics will change based on the decision that they make around what business model to pursue. So, I'll just by way of what a business yeah. model is, uh, selling courses that's one business model. Or- Licensing a business is another business model. So people you're saying even when they try to retell your story they are confusing the two so uh, but very different when it comes yeah. to execution there's no uh, recurring yeah. course model those like, just, just, <laughs> just wildly side different note, right? <laughs> so um how do you process through n- if if you were starting so mm-hmm. not as when you're looking to acquire how do you process through what is the right business model to pursue so this is pulled from my 100 million dollar offers book
0: which goes th- the point of that book was to answer the question: What do I sell? And I think that a lot of people, especially when you're starting out, you're like, I need a business plan. I need a. I don't think any business I've had has had a business plan. As an aside, um, it's just what are we going to sell and how are we going to get customers? And then from there, we build everything around it. And so, um, isn't that a business plan? <laughs> I have two things on my plan. <laughs> I mean, I've seen like 16 page business plans. Right, and I'm like, right, okay, right. all these numbers are made up. It doesn't matter. Like, do you know how to get customers? Um, And so picking the avatar, which is the customer that you want to go after, and then picking the problem that you want to solve for them. And problem you want to solve is I feel like kind of a trite term in the in an entrepreneur space. Um, but you usually wanna make their lives easier in some way. Uh it's usually gonna track down to status or it's gonna track down to time. Right? Like those are, those are two huge buckets that, that can, that cover a lot of stuff. And you know, different people say there's health, wealth and, and relationships. There's, you know, there's a million bigger buckets that you can try and chunk this stuff into, but if you are starting out, so let me just get you really tactical. So we were just really clouds for a second. Let me just get you tactical. Number one, you can go and set up all of your autos of incorporation, your LLC and all that stuff online with a few clicks of a button in under 30 minutes. So you do that as step one. Step two, you take those papers to a bank and you get a bank account. Step three, you hook up a payment processor to that bank account, which is, again, a series of clicks that nowadays are almost automated. Once you have those three things, you get a stranger to give you money in exchange for doing something for them. And so I would categorize businesses as I see them, usually as you either sell products, you sell services, so physical products, something like a mug, right? You sell services. You do something that they would otherwise have to do for them. You write software that does something that a human would do for them, but because you have an auto, you have automation with code, uh, you can get them to do it. Or you create things that entertain people that they want to have access to, and so those basically function into media. Again, you've got people, products, uh, code, and and, uh, and 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 content. So it actually breaks out to those four types of businesses, and. I think that most people, if you have no, like, let's say you aren't a software developer, right? And you want to start a business. Uh, the easiest ones to start are either, the easiest one to start is a service business because it only requires your time and you to learn a skill that other people can also learn, but some people just might not want to do it. And that is all you need to solve. And I remember like when I was in college and I, I spoke at uh, some universities for uh, for entrepreneurship and everyone there is always like, here's my business idea, right? And it's always like weird uh, widgets and gizmos and like these, these never before seen businesses. And most of those will fail. Whereas like, if you wanna make your first business and the big fallacy is that the first is gonna be the forever business, which it won't. Most entrepreneurs have many businesses over their career and each business you learn elements that help you build a bigger and better business the next time. And so you start with something that people already buy. So it's like, you can look, what do people already buy? They already buy lawn care services. They could mow their lawn. They just choose not to. They could optimize their website for SEO. They just choose not to. They could run their own ads. They just choose not to. They could edit their own videos. They just choose not to. You could set up email, you know, autoresponders for people, but they choose not to. You could set up voicemails for businesses and and transcribe it and send it to them because for those people, it saves them time. And so you can pick any problem you want that someone already does or already purchases, look at the solutions, and you can literally just do it the same way and have a way to get customers. That's it. Like that's, that's it. You just reach out to people that, you know, one-on-one, you reach out to strangers one-on-one, you make content about the problem and you run ads. There's the only four things that you can do to let other people know about your stuff. So once you decide what you have to sell, you then use the core four, one of them pick, and then you let people know about it until eventually someone says, yeah, I'd be interested in you solving that problem for me. Mm -hmm. And that's how you make your first dollar.
1: As someone who is constantly learning new information and skills, I've found some tricks to most effectively and efficiently retain and remember that information. And one of the keys to this process is actively engaging with the content. You have to use it. And when it comes to learning a new language, the most efficient app out there is Babbel. With Babbel's revolutionary conversation-based approach, learning a new language is both efficient and effective. With quick 10-minute lessons rooted in real-life situations, you can start actually speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Take it from somebody who has struggled mightily to learn Greek, to impress my beloved wife and my in-laws, I really wish Babbel had existed back then. It would have helped so much. So I highly encourage you guys to check out Babbel today and take advantage of the special deal for Impact Theory listeners right now Get fifty-five percent off your Babbel subscription at Babbel.com slash impact theory. Get fifty-five percent off at babbel.com slash impact theory, and that's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com again slash impact theory. Rules and restrictions may apply. All right, Focus becomes a problem. People end up totally. getting really scattered. They want to try a bunch of different things and see what sticks. Um, how, how do you make focus work for you and not against you? I feel like focus can only work for you. Um, well, I guess lack yeah, of yeah. focus yeah, is yeah, right? <laughs> the nightmare scenario. Most yeah. people spend yeah. their time in. Yeah.
0: I think it's, um, so I love showing this visual, uh, and maybe we can grab it at post for this, but if you imagine a curve, right, where you go, Uh, You start here, a little bit above the line at uninformed optimism, is that you see your buddies doing drop shipping and he's making money. And so you're like, wow, this must be amazing. I will do that too. So then you leave your current opportunity to do, or maybe you start and you start doing that. Then you move to stage two. So you go over the hump of excitement and then you go to informed pessimism. Now you're below the line. Then you're like, wow, okay, you have. there's a lot of other stuff that's really competitive. I don't have a brand. It's hard to differentiate. You know, the cost of goods is actually continuing to rise. And so are ad costs. And, blah, blah, blah. and you start realizing the other things that you didn't know before. So you have a, a slightly more realistic view of the opportunity. Then you go to stage three, which is the value of despair, where you're like, nothing's working. I don't know what I'm doing. And this point is where everyone then jumps to uninformed optimism in the next opportunity. And they repeat repeat one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, until they're eventually able to learn that they just need to stomach because every single business has shit. And when the grass is green on the other side, it's because there's lots of manure there, right? Same as yours. And then you go up to informed optimism and then you hit achievement. And so those are the five stages that I see most entrepreneurs going through. And they continue to cycle the first three over and over again until they learn the lesson. So this is a skill, focus is a skill. I can train someone to do it. Um, If you're in the same environment and you're at this point where you're not sure what to do, but other people have succeeded at this thing, and then you think something else is easier that you find out about, that is a stimulus that we can then say, here's the red flashcard. Are you going to duck? or Are you going to get slapped? And realistically, most people just need to keep getting slapped until eventually they realize that nothing is going to be easy and they have to go through the period of not knowing what they're doing. Because that's like, that in essence is what entrepreneurship feels like is uncertainty of whether or not all of the time that you've put in is actually going to work out. And you have to get really comfortable with that, is that you won't know. Because if you were to be guaranteed the outcome that you were going to get what you want, you wouldn't want to do it to begin with because everyone would already be doing it because it's already guaranteed, which means the opportunity is gone. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity is in the uncertainty. And so as long as you can embrace that, which is why you have to have some tolerance for risk as an entrepreneur, because you have to pay down your tax of ignorance, which we all have to pay down every single day for not knowing the things we should know. Um, And the only way you do, you pay down that tax is that you test and you iterate. And so you just want to get as many no's out of the way, as many failures out of the way, because you're not actually failing. You made progress. It wasn't yes or no. Did it work or not? It's how well did it work? And I think if you can make even that frame shift, you're like, okay, well, I'm reaching out to people, they're responding, but I'm not getting them on the phone. Okay. Well then you have a scripting issue. Okay. Then you get them on the phone. Okay. Well, they're not buying. Okay. Well then it might be an offer issue. It still might be a sales issue depends on why they're not buying. If they're saying, you know, it's price. It's like, you might be mispriced, but you also might just be really terrible at explaining the value. And so you just continue to work your way down until eventually someone's like, yeah, that sounds good. And they read you their credit card over the phone. And you're like, holy shit, this is actually happening. And you make your first dollar.
1: And I promise you if you make your first dollar. The second one comes a hundred times faster than the first one did. If there are many variables present, many variables must be tested. Must be studied. uh, Must be studied. Yeah. Uh, That is certainly uh, marketing (laughs) summed up. Yeah. There, no doubt uh, that people are going to have a hard time figuring that out. Um, I want to better understand, you just did a book launch for um, your most recent book and it... I mean, you set records, it was unreal. I mean, really like blew people's minds, set a standard in in the world of online marketing. Um, what was it about that, that, or what did you demonstrate in the way that you did that that other people don't understand? So with each book, I wanted to demonstrate
0: the concept of the book with the book itself. And so offers when I released it, it was a uh, $1.99. I've now since made it free, um, but- it was $1.99 on Kindle. It had a course that went with it that many people charge $5,000 or $10,000 for. Um, and it was the sub-headline of the book, and Offer So Good, People Feel Stupid Selling no. And so I actually launched that book with a single post when I had 10,000 followers on Instagram. That's it. And every month after the first month, it continued to sell more and more copies. Into to this day, it continues to sell more copies every month. And that is based on the offer being exceptional and people sharing it because they got tremendous value relative to what they paid. That was the, That is the entire concept of the book. The, the core framework of that book is, is called the, the value equation, um, which I won't get into, but that is basically people say the word value, but how do you operationalize value, right? And so that book is about operationalizing value, making the thing that you currently sell more valuable in the perception of the customer so they're willing to trade more of their money for it. The leads book had an entirely different core concept, which was the core four and the four lead getters. And that is the advertising cycle. And so it's, how do you let other people know about your stuff? And so the sub headline of that book was how to get strangers to want to buy your stuff. Now, to be fair, it's not, it's not how to get strangers to buy your stuff because that's sales, but how to get them to want to buy your stuff is advertising. And so this book sits literally just between, they don't know who you are and they show interest. And that's where the book ends. You get lots of leads saying, I'm interested. I'd like to find out more about your stuff. And that's all I could fit in one book to make it actually effective and operational for most people. And so since the concept of the book was to advertise and to get lots of leads, then I thought it would be appropriate to advertise and get lots of leads. And I used every method in the book, all eight for the book launch, even though I could just have made a post on my, you know, across all my social medias and probably sold plenty of books just doing that. But I wanted to show that this stuff works today and it will work in a hundred years and it worked a hundred years ago. And so I went through, I had some people that I reached out to one-on-one purposely just to check the box. I reached out to some cold people so I could do podcasts. I uh, ran ads for it, even though I didn't need to run ads. And we still got 137,000 people from ads. Uh, we had affiliates. We got 104,000 people there from affiliates. Uh, we had 27,000 affiliates promote the book. Um, we had customer referrals, people sent their friends there. So I had an an incentive that if you just get 10 people to come, you'll get two bonus chapters that aren't released with the book, uh, affiliates, uh, which is the, the, another lead getter, right? I mentioned it earlier, but, uh, affiliates, uh, we got them, uh, to, to promote the book. We got agencies who actually were the ones who ran the ads for us because we don't run ads at hold go because we don't transact. Um, and then, uh, employees, which is the fourth, type of lead getter, which is they do the core four on your behalf for you. So we had Mosey Media, which is our internal content team, um, made all the content and the ads for that matter uh, for the event and the book itself. And so I actually only did uh, 17 uh, 17 short form pieces of content and six long form pieces of content. And then that got cut into uh, 143 posts that we did over six weeks uh, on top of the 2200 posts that we were making anyways uh, over that same period of time. And so I used all the methods in the book to demonstrate, to give proof that the book works. And so, you know, the next book, I'll try and continue that meta theme of, I have concepts in this book and I will show you that they work because I will use them to market and promote the book. Mm.
1: The thing that I really want to make sure that people understand, and if you think I'm crazy, definitely (laughs) let me know, but I doubt you will. Um, the reason that all of that worked so well, isn't what you did at the time. It's what you did for the years mm-hmm. leading up to that moment, uh, building brand, uh, building awareness, generating massive amounts of goodwill. Um, is that like, what amount of magnification did the, whatever, four-ish years leading up to the launch of that book play in the, the launch's success? It was everything. I mean, it was
0: everything. Now, that being said, you could still absolutely use Like you can still use warm outreach. You can still use cold outreach. You can still like, and one of the concepts in the book is making content. And I talk about how I structure content how we pick topics, how we pick headlines, how we format it, how we do all those things so that people can use that and make content for themselves. Um, but usually the longer you can wait um, before making any ask, and to be fair, the, I gave the book for free. And if, if you wanted to buy a physical copy, you could. That was the whole. That was. Let me let's uh, spoil it. the surprise of the launch was that I gave everything away for free and said if they want to buy a physical copy, you could. Um, I'm. I can't wait to write the book on brand because I have a lot of thoughts on it and I can't wait to have really clearly crystallized, like, un unre- you know beyond reproach ideas about brand. Um, but I'll give you a working teaser for for how it works. But brand is basically teaching. It's associating something people know with something they don't know. And we associate these things enough that eventually I can remove this. And then you'll associate water with my hand. And so if I do that enough times and I have, you know, water and, you know, coffee and whatever, then you might generalize and say the hand is a beverage thing. Right. And I like thinking about it that way, because what do I want people to associate me with, I want people to associate me with tremendous value. I want people to t- associate me with long-term goodwill. I want them to associate me with money right? So every book's is hundred million dollars, something offers hundred million dollar leads. Um, and so I want them to associate me with investing, which is what a lot of the stories that I talk about are companies that we've invested in and that we owned and scaled or exited. And so I, we do those things so that when you have a brand, a brand is put on something to direct someone's behavior. It is a, is a physical sign. So if you look at the you know, original, the origins of the word brand it was a brand, you put it on a cow. Right. And so if you have a cow that doesn't have a brand and a cow that does have a brand, you will behave differently with a cow that has a brand on it. You're not going to go capture it. You're not going to go kill it. You might return it to its neighbor, its neighbor, whatever, like the brand changes your behavior. And so brands have, at least as far as I'm concerned, like these, you know, I haven't written the book yet, but, um, have kind of two, two continuums. You have the strength of the brand and then you have the positive or negative, uh, inclination towards it. So away or towards, so like Nazis, for example, have a very strong brand (laughs) away. most people now to be fair there's also a subset of people who are super strong towards there is a subset of people who some kind of way right it changes their behavior yes it does right and then and the inclination says towards or away to some degree um you know donald trump has a strong brand right for many people for for a percentage of the population it's it's uh negative and for a percentage of the population it's positive right and so when we think about brands that way it's been helpful for me because you really answer the question who and what do I want to associate myself with? And then by doing that, eventually your logo and your identity will then have a set of things that people associate with, which then will change their behavior, which is why I think brands are the most valuable things that you can build because it really becomes a way to influence the behavior of the masses at scale. And so if every single person recognizes the Nike swoosh, and I can take a water bottle and then put a Nike swoosh on it and triple how much I can charge for it and still get more people to buy it, then you can measure the strength of the brand by the difference in price between the commoditized version of it and the branded version of it. And that translates into tremendous profits from a from a capitalistic perspective. And so if you're trying to build something really valuable, then you make many associations that are positive for specific audience, because, uh, I think black rifle coffee, right. They're kind of like politically charged ish. Right. So black rifle coffee is going to be really positive for people who are probably right-leaning, uh, in terms of their associations with that brand. It'll probably be kind of negative for the the people who are more left-leaning and that's okay because they're like, we can sell to half the population, whatever. And so i'm I'm kind of uh, agnostic to the direction of it and obviously Nazis negative on that but like for for most of these things I'm just looking at what is what is the percentage likelihood that people will adhere or comply with the requests that the brand makes of them buy my thing go to this thing whatever and so that is the that's why you can have somebody who has a huge brand in terms of uh the amount of people who are aware of it but have very low ability to direct or change behavior and so you probably i'm sure you know this Better than anyone with Quest, you guys were one of the first ones getting into the influencer space, like way back, way back when the term influencer was a new term. Mm. Um, And you probably saw some people with million-person accounts and they couldn't drive any sales, and then you saw somebody with fifteen thousand and crushed it because they had a stronger brand for a narrower audience. Even if it was just like a, a girl cop who has an audience of all girl cops, they might have lots of positive associations with that person and then be more likely to, you know, comply with whatever request they have. And so I know this is a a branding discussion. um, But the reason that I think many people wanted to come to the event is because they were rewarded in the past for consuming content, for reading my last book. And so they felt like the likelihood that I was going to reward them again at this event would be high. And I try to, like, I'll tell you a secret. I try to make many promises and keep all of them. And the more times you can make promises and keep promises, the higher the likelihood people will ascribe to you for being somebody who is predictable in a good way. If he said this will happen, this is what's going to happen. If he said it's going to be worth it, it's going to be worth it. And so that was woven in for the 24 months from the time I released offers to the time we did leads was trying to actively build up the goodwill so that um, we could set records and do something really cool and demonstrate the concepts in the book in the real world so that people could know that it would work for them too.
1: Mm. No I man, it's incredible, it's breathtaking. Um, What you guys were able to do. What was a record that you broke? So the Guinness Book of World Records for a business virtual conference live
0: was twenty one thousand for a business conference. So you absolutely yeah, well,
1: it. demolished,
0: yeah, that, which is really cool. That's awesome. But I, love the, to see it. I will say this as an aside. Uh, I think the 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 fanfare about the launch will decrease soonish, and I think that the actual contents of the book is going to be the thing that that can, that people that is that machine will start spitting because inside of the book, referrals is always the one that I always try and drive the most in any business I have because it's the lowest cost to acquire customers. Not that it's a customer acquisition thing for me, but um, or sorry, not a money-making thing for me. <laughs> Books are not the best way to make money. Just throw that out there. Um, but it can create a viral effect so that you can get more customers every month without paying a cost to acquire. And so the mission of acquisition.com is to make real business education accessible for everyone. And so in order to do that, I can't do it alone. And so that is why I have to have other people help me.
1: Yeah. uh, You're only going to scale as much as you can get high quality people to help you. That's for sure. There was something fascinating that happened during your launch, um, which I would love to hear from a guy who did not in the beginning consider himself a salesperson, somebody that has... Uh, gotten very good at sales, and as I was saying in our first interview, which the funny thing is, I ended up um, taking you on a side tangent before you answered it. But I said, "The world does not think you're creepy. Why aren't you creepy when it comes to <laughs> yeah, sales?" That, yeah. But there, there was a a moment which you did on purpose. But I want to know what uh, you're going to say. It doesn't matter. It's all about behavior. But I want to understand oh, what you yeah. think about this. Yeah. So you intentionally took people on an emotional roller coaster ride where you start. I'm going to give you this for free, and I'm going to give you this. But if I ask you, or sorry, I'm going to you this uh normally goes for this much and this normally goes for this much but you're crossing it out classic thing where you then ask for money now you could see the comments coming through at the time and people turned on you totally and i'm assuming they were saying something akin to i knew it this guy is just after money whatever um if there's nothing wrong with sales why did they turn on you uh actually
0: so i don't know why they turned on me i can make a guess But at the end of the day, like, I'm never going to know what the main reason was. you knew
1: they were going to. You did that on purpose. I had a,
0: I had a, I don't know why I knew that. So when people see this thing, um, there is an aversive reaction to it in a certain percentage of the population. That being said, I got a zillion messages to people being like, dude, I was ready to give you my credit card Mm at 5k. And so, sure, like we could have taken $50 million at the event. um, But what I wanted was, you know, $500 million of value to many people that later will come through companies that get started and scaled using the stuff and then they wanna partner with us. Um, but the reason that I did it was, or at least this was my hope for doing it, was that I wanted people to remember it. And so memory is driven by emotion. Um, and so I uh, I took this roller coaster approach uh, because I also wanted to subvert the audience. If I just said, hey, it's all free, it's all amazing, here it is, I don't think nearly as many people would have talked about uh, the thing. I also don't think they would have perceived the value as high. Um, so I wanted to sell them on the value of this thing and then give it to them rather than just saying, if I got on and said, Hey guys, uh, there's a free course with eight different things in there that are, you know, I spent a lot of time on go enjoy them. I mean, it would have been fine. People would be like, you're amazing. Uh, but doing it this way, it becomes a, like, I think a lot about this It's like, what is that person going to tell the next person? Like what words are they going to say? They're probably gonna be like, dude, he did this like fake pitch and he like And he like, everybody was going left. And then all of a sudden he made it all free. It was unreal. Like, like the place went nuts like that. They will remember. And, um, that was what I was going for. I figured there was a higher likelihood that they would remember it if I did it that way.
1: Yeah. I think you are very correct about that. Um, talk to me more about your mission. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I, I want, I like to put this big disclaimer out up front.
0: I am a, a ruthless capitalist. I am absolutely here to make money. I am not a saint. I have no, like... Many nice things were said about me after the event. And I also remember that the same people also threw stones at me 30 seconds earlier. So like that doesn't sway me a ton, but I'm letting everybody know I'm here to make money. I'm just measuring how I make my money over a longer time horizon. Mm. That's all it is. And so I could have taken $50 million, you know, from, from the event. I think that's a really realistic number. Um, but if I do one deal from somebody of the now probably million something people who have just even just seen the event recording or were there live, um, I will probably make more than $50 million and also get a brand that continues to compound at a faster rate. And so to be clear, I don't think there's anything wrong with monetizing an audience. I don't think there's anything wrong. Um, it really comes down to keeping promises. So like, for example, like I, I will probably be launching some product at some point uh, in the, in the future. Um, whatever could that be? Yeah. And, um, I don't think that I will have any negative response to it. And so it really just comes down to like, what have you promised or what expectations have you set? And then are you meeting those expectations? And so I think my, my view on this has shifted a little bit over time is I used to think like you have to exceed expectations, but now I think that it's really just like, can you perfectly meet the expectations the person has? Now, somebody might have really high expectations, um, but you try and set them and meet them. And you do that cycle as many times as you can so that their predictive measure of trust with you, if you want to operationalize that, um, is that you are trustworthy because you keep your promises. And so I think that's a lot where uh, like, the only, the other reason is that within the, unfortunately, within the the course creation world, this is one man's two cents, all right? And I want to be really clear about this because people get their pennies in a bunch. You can choose to feed your family whatever way you need to. I have zero judgment on it. What I do acknowledge is that people make associations. And so I could find the most ethical porn business in the entire world. As soon as I stand on stage and talk about our porn company, I will forever be associated with porn. Is there anything wrong with that? Yes or no? I don't know. For me, I think that there, is, uh, there are other businesses that I, would like to do, that I would like to do a deal with that might view that negatively. And so it might prevent me from doing a much bigger deal in the future by having that. And so I won't do it not out of principle, but out of pure dollars and cents materialism, if you want to call it that. And so um, the course world to that point has a lot of charlatans and a lot of people who make promises and break promises and a lot of people who set bad expectations or unrealistic expectations and then people get really frustrated and upset um, over what they get. And so for me, even if I had the best course in the world, I wouldn't want to sell the information because it would associate me with that group. And so I've taken a lot of time to disassociate myself with that category. Um, And it was because I, I mean, I was a brick and mortar owner but like I learned a lot of direct response marketing in that world, so I made a lot of friends in that world who then make, made commentary and then put me on stages, and so I had a really strong associations early on with that community. Now, again, nothing wrong with that community. I'm saying, but the associations that I would prefer to have with my brand are the ones that I said earlier, which might seem in direct conflict with that, which is like long-term oriented, enterprise value, being patient, giving first. Like These are all things that uh, many people in that community, not all, but many people, and in that instance, especially with branding, in my opinion, the good apples do get thrown out with the bad. So I do absolutely think that there are amazing education businesses that exist. Absolutely, like bar none, period, end of statement. There are just so many that aren't that it's very difficult to make the association. And so that's why I think that if I had let's say a no strip that I was going to come out with, or I had a dessert company that I was going to come out with. I don't think anyone would have any issue supporting that or me saying like, Hey, I want to, am going to build this with you guys. I'll build this in public. I think these are all things that people would be totally fine with, but why it's because of the expectations that I said at the beginning. And so acting in accordance with that over a long period of time. And to one sub note on that is that I do believe that brands can change over time. And so the concept we're talking about earlier with like successive approximation, where like, if you are one shade to the right, one shade to the right, one shade to the right, you can slowly move a brand. Uh, now, whenever you make that move, you will lose some people who liked the thing that you had before, and you will gain some people that like the new thing. And the idea of repositioning or, you know, directing a brand is making sure that that trade-off is positive. It's like, uh, it's like the local band that, you know, has that local, you know, vibe, whatever. And then they, they go a little bit more mainstream. And then all their early fans are like, they sold out. But what they really did was they trade a small group of people for a much larger group of people. And more people like this brand than the old brand. Because if they liked the old brand, they would have already been big. And so it's really just a calculated trade on what you're willing to associate with that more people will have a positive, strong association with to make it increasingly likely
1: that they will do what you would like them to do that helps you with your long-term goal. Mm-hmm. So zooming in on your, the mission of your company, yeah. which is to make entrepreneurship accessible or business, business. Access, accessible yeah. to everyone, yeah. um, you have a quote, which um, I think is really, really interesting. Uh, businesses solve problems. Businesses make the world better. There are too many problems for any one person to solve. I want to help create as many businesses as possible so we can solve as many problems as we can. What are some of the problems that you think business can solve? I mean, I would probably have a shorter list of problems that businesses can't solve. Interesting. Yeah. In a world where entrepreneurship is not always celebrated and capitalism is often vilified, um, is that just a contrarian stance or do you think that people are a little crazy to not see the value of business? So if we were to zoom all the way out and just think about the economy as a whole
0: as allocation of resources, just time, energy, money, et cetera um, capitalism in and of itself is the, is a, is a system about efficiently allocating capital. Now there are trade-offs with that because if you have a pure capitalistic society, then there are a lot of other things that we say are important to us. Like we believe people should have healthcare. We believe people should have a place to live. We believe people should have education and, you know, services for their kids when they're younger, whatever it is. Right. Um, we have these beliefs. And so we make trades based on that pure idea of capitalism because capitalism can absolutely be pure, but most, actually, I don't know of an economy right now that's a true pure capitalist because most humans say that that market is too ruthless. And so we're willing to make some trades and that's where legislation where we actually artificially move the incentives of the market to incentivize certain behaviors. The problem with um, governments as an allocation vehicle for capital is that they are one tenth as efficient as private because it's not their money and they never earned it. And so you get really good at capitalism by allocating resources well and getting a return on your resources. You don't get you, it's very hard to get fired in the government and you manage billions and billions of dollars. And the requirements to get in are not as high as they are to spend even a modicum of that kind of money in the private sector. And so you just have to be more efficient with what you have because you have to survive every day rather than having a guaranteed stipend from the whole country that gets taken off the top before everyone sees their paycheck. And so. Um, if government can solve it, private sector can solve it better, faster, cheaper. The only real issues come into how much regulation do we put on top to, to prevent bad actors or what? I mean, that's the whole concept around, I mean, you know, this, I'm just saying for the audience, uh, around like why we try and break up monopolies, which now we've just given up on because they're bigger than governments. Uh, but we, we do that because we want to protect, you know, we want the capitalist society competition in general is good for society, tough for the competitors, but if you have 10 dry cleaning stores, the best dry cleaning store win, and then everyone gets better dry cleaning. So it's good for society. It's bad for the nine guys who fail. And so um, I do think that entrepreneurship is the way that we solve problems. And I think that there's usually an innovative way to solve any problem if we have enough knowledge. Uh, to do so. I mean, and Elon's proving that with kind of first principles approach to like, can I can I launch rockets at a 10th the price? Well, where do we get our metal from, right? Like what is required for a rocket? It's like, we have to get this from here to here. Let's build from there, right? Rather than like, well, we have to go for this guy who's our contractor for space navigation. Well, why can't we make space navigation? Well, you know, like, and then again, and then the prices expand. And so that is my TLDR is that I can't learn everything. Everyone has a unique life. They are uniquely, uh, positioned to tackle opportunities that I only have one lifetime to live. And I might be able to solve two or three big problems in my lifetime, maybe. But if everybody has these skills, then I think when I die, I will be proud of the meta contribution, even if I don't capture all of the economics, because I'm going to then die and then someone else will have it and it doesn't even matter anyways. (laughs) And so there's an element of that that just makes me feel good about it, that drives me forward, like the 17 year old, who's going to sleep with the book under his pillow to serve, you know, provide for his family with the one goat they have. Um, I think that if I can equip that guy that he can do whatever, like he can solve problems that I never could. Um, and so I don't think it's my life purpose to build the next rocket or cure cancer. I just don't think that's in my set. It's also not in my interests, but I think I can help equip the entrepreneurs who will.
1: I love that, man. I hope more people hear that message about business. I think that to your point about. Serving people in a more efficient way, in a way that they prefer is so powerful. And to watch it slowly get villainized of, as I've gotten older has really been sad. And yeah. I think will lead us down a super dark path. Tell me for those that are just listening <laughs> yeah. and aren't watching across the bridge of your nose on a nose strip, it yeah. says the one of zero, Yeah, be one of zero, excuse me. Uh, what does that mean? So one of our kind of, big themes in our content creation at
0: Mosey Media is one of one content, or it was one of one content. Meaning I don't want to do a breakdown of Coca-Cola's business model because literally anyone could do that. That's a book report. A college kid could do that. Anybody could do that. And so I only want to make content that I can make. And so one of my big rules of advertising is show what only you can show and say what only you can say. And so if you're the, the only triple black belt something in your local area, then say that and then also show what you can do that other people can't do. And if you don't have that reality, you either need to niche down and make it a much narrow thing that only you can do, or you get better and can beat more people and you expand it. But that's fundamentally, anyone can become a category of one if you go narrow enough and then you just continue to expand over time. So the one of one uh, content was the concept that we've adhered to. Now, as the team started to see what was gonna happen for the event and how much we were putting into it and all the free stuff we were gonna give away, um, and how much money we were choosing actively to not make, they were like, dude, no one would do this. They're like, this is even one of one. They're like, this is one of zero. And it was like, that's it for 18 months. I've been looking for like, uh, a saying or an ism that was short and could encapsulate many of the values skills that can be learned, uh, that I believe are important. And that one of zero concept, which I love, because also from a math perspective, one of zero, you know, one divided by zero is undefined. And so it's really about being beyond definition, writing your own path, you know, keeping promises in a world that breaks them, delaying expectations, giving first, and giving over and over again until they ask, or even if they never ask. And trying to live your life in a way that you earn own approval by the end of it. And I think that's what one of zero is all about. And so for me, be one of zero. And that's a, that is a brand that I, I really want to stand behind
1: because that's what I believe. I love it. Where can people follow you?
0: You're listening to this on audio. Both my books are free on my podcast. The leads book and the offers audio book are on my podcast. You can just listen to them. You don't have to, you don't have to opt in. It's just right there. You can, you can listen to
1: them. I love it. All right, everybody, speaking of things that you will love, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.